Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. I'm Darren Leslie. This week's podcast is something a little bit different as I am joined by my friends Arthur and Mike from the Tea and Teaching podcast for a brilliant crossover episode. And in this episode, we share six things that we have learned from our respective podcasts. The six things are as follows. Understanding how students learn needs to form a greater part of teacher training and CPD. The teaching profession needs supervision as much as coaching. Teaching well is relationship building. A focus on improving teaching improves almost everything in our schools. Teachers don't need a deep understanding of cognitive science in order to effectively embed it in their practices. And finally, schools need to do more to support parent teachers. There is a great discussion with Arthur and Mike, and if you would like to get involved further, please use the hashtag BecomingEducated to share your thoughts with us. So without further ado, let's dive straight into my conversation with Arthur and Mike from Tea and Teaching. And here we are with a special crossover episode. Mike, it's lovely seeing your face, but there's another face on the screen. Darren, hello, how are you? I'm absolutely fantastic, Arthur. How are you? All the better for having a more qualified PE teacher on my display and in my ears. Oh, sorry, Mike. Straight in there. Straight in there. And this is what I have to deal with uh, on a a week by week basis. Um, It must be lovely on your pod being on your own. (laughs) <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. I don't have to put up with any of that nonsense. <laughs> you don't know how lucky you it's are. All right. It's all good. Well, chaps, it's it's lovely to kind of get our two pods together. Um, uh, it's been a been a good journey for us, hasn't it, Mike? Yeah, and we're obviously uh, honoured to be in in such company as yours, Darren. Um, you know, you, I think it's no secret that your podcast is one of the reasons we got into podding about education so thank you very much for coming on our pod and thank you very much for having us on your pod no thank you um so much for your kind words i absolutely love your one i was actually listening to jared cooney horvath this morning totally um out flummox you both a few times which is fantastic and i think you i I was guessing along like that's got to be a myth it's got to be a myth And and he says it's not and you're like oh my god i couldn't believe it Um, i've never felt simultaneously stupid and entertained it's a very weird feeling i can Um, imagine but hopefully we'll do some entertaining and learning ourselves for the rest of this pod um so just maybe for people who are joining us uh we've both been doing our podcasts on education fit and we're gonna chat about some of the things we've we've learned from our respective podcasts We've all each have a little reflective walk, I think, gone away and sat with a cup of tea uh, and thought about the two main things we've learned from our pod. Um, and we're going to kind of introduce them to the group and then chat away and see what we can learn from each other, see if we've got any questions for each other. Um, and hopefully listeners from this, you'll also be like, oh, I need to go and listen to that episode. Oh, I've learned this from becoming educated. Yes, Mike, he's filled me with wisdom once again. I feel better for it. Um is that going to happen, Mike? I, I would say personally it happens on an episode-by-episode basis, but in my modesty, maybe not. Um, I've worked with you for years, Mike, and every moment I've learned something. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm going I'm to kick us off. I'm going to take over and kick us off, I think. Um, I'm going to talk about um, our chat a few months back with uh, Jade Pierce who I'm sure many of our listeners have know from many podcasts, uh, but also the phenomenal stuff she puts out on Twitter. And what I was going to talk to you two gents about really was after kind of our chat with Jade, which was quite detailed, quite research-based, quite about the theory, what have we learned? I kind of reflected upon my own training as a teacher. And I was thinking I trained with Teach First. So it's kind of a six-week intensive summer where you get to know what it's like to be a teacher. Um, and I was thinking back on that time and I don't think once was it ever mentioned to me at all how students learn. I don't think it was ever brought up. And I, I actually don't think I ever thought about it, um, until probably a good few months, maybe a year into my own teaching. I just, I was like, if I do good teaching and I do good maths, 
children will learn good. Um, Are you suggesting, Arthur, that that six weeks of learning about teaching didn't fully prepare you to be a teacher? No, it fully prepared me to um, be able to tell you about the Teach First mission statement, but to actually be like how um, students learn, um, I I don't think I ever thought about it. And when I really started getting into it, and um, Mike, I think you might have heard me say this, so I'm sorry, but Craig Barton, How I Wish I Taught Mathematics. Reading that book, I was like, I think I've done so much wrong in my life as a teacher. Um, And that book really made me kind of think, well, like, what do I need to go away and, and do differently? Um, and that kind of led to reading some blogs and then reading more books. And then that, I th- I think that's what led me to teen teaching was kind of like, I, I realized how much I need to learn outside of the world of mathematics. There was so much focus in my first year of become a better mathematician. You will become a better teacher that I never thought about anyone listening to what I was saying. I was like, if I just say something that's good, the kids will learn. So I don't know if either of you want to kind of interject and be like, no, that's just you, Arthur, or if that kind of rings true for your own experiences. No, I find that very interesting because um, there's a lot of folklore in teaching, a lot of folk science and so on, and folk psychology. And I find that incredibly fascinating. I also had the great privilege of interviewing Jade Pearson. If you listen back to that when I'm becoming educated, it's more like an interrogation for me trying to find out everything she knows so I can do my job better. Um, But no, I totally agree that this idea of how students actually learn is missing from so many classrooms, from so many teacher training um, establishments. It's almost like you're you're set off to be a teacher and set free in your classroom. And if you do the teachery bit, the students will do the learning bit on their own. But I think if we get better at understanding how people learn... So I think if we, as teachers, take more time considering how students learn and incorporate that into our planning, then when when we're delivering our instruction, we'll become a lot more better. trying to think of a better word there, but our instruction, our delivery of instruction will become a lot better because we're considering the nuance of how our students learn or the shortness of their working memory, how we get things into their long-term memory through that repetition. But I think understanding that deeper as well will help us not just repeat things every day and have it on the board, but actually think think more deeply about how students interact with certain knowledge. You know, and rather than just hearing it, they're seeing it, they're watching it, they're discovering it, where it's coming up again and again and again in different ways. Um, and I think that once you understand that, you can almost become a better teacher and the students will learn more, if that makes sense. Yeah, Mike, I was going to ask you kind of, because I can obviously sit from my perspective as a, as a maths teacher of, I need to think about how X goes to Y for want of a better phrase, how I put a worksheet together, what textbooks, my sequence of questioning maybe is an even better thought there. But in terms of P, when you're kind of, it's a, it's a lot more active out there, how does kind of the research lead into how the students are learning on the field, doing physical activity, I mean? Well, when, just to go back to when you talked about your training, like my training at university was by the end of a lesson, students should... Uh, was it they should know something, they should understand something, they should be able to do something. That was our learning objectives, was know, understand, be able to. And the idea was that you would set up some activity, you would demonstrate the skill, you would explain why, the students would go away and practice, you would increase the pressure, and then you would apply it to a, a game situation if it was, you know, that that aspect of PE. And at the end of the lesson, the students would just walk away, most of them being able to do what you'd just shown them how to do. And actually, when you look at the science of it, they're not just empty vessels that get filled with knowledge and, and skills. It's about being able to recall that. So for instance, in PE, it's, it's for me, what we're doing shooting in football. Can we link that back to when we did shooting in hockey? Can we link it back to when we did shooting in basketball? Can we try and make those links between different sports and common skills uh, through the curriculum and actually have that recall and that retrieval back into their learning? And that's going to give them a, a deeper understanding of sport as a whole, not just individual activities. And I know when I started teaching, it was like, you will teach six weeks of football. You will teach six weeks of hockey. And actually, when you look at it and when you look at the science of how we um, conceptualize learning and take learnt facts and learnt information and take them into bigger concepts, actually, that 
there's far more you need to do with your curriculum in order to make it effective based on the science of learning. So, yeah, that had a real profound impact on me, what Jade spoke about. Um, and I know like, it definitely took it back to the school I was working at, at the time and, and tried to implement as much of that as I can. I was very similar to Darren. I was like, how much can I learn from Jade in this 40 minutes? And then how much am I just going to replicate a magpie off of her? Because she's brilliant. And I know, you know, that's, that's no disrespect to Jade because I know she shares everything on Twitter. Um, so for me, yeah, it was a real impactful, uh, episode. And when you said you were going to bring that up on this pod, I was, I was gutted because I wanted to talk about that episode as well, Arthur. So thank you for bringing that one up. No, you, I remember at the end of that episode, you just saying that was awful. I learned nothing. I'd be like, whoa, my, that's unfair. <laughs> that's not fair. Sorry, Jade. Like. She's coming back on tea and teaching later this year, Mike. So you can can ask all the questions then. That's great. Um, well, we'll, move, well, we'll move on to the second one then, gents. Go for it. Do you want to share one of yours, Darren? Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly will. Um, I'm going to go for a, a, an episode I had with Bruce Robertson. I know he's been on your podcast as well, and I've had the great privilege of speaking to Bruce on three occasions, and also working under him back in my early days as an NQT and. The focus of Bruce's first book and, and a lot of what he's done since then is this idea that a focus on improving teaching improves almost everything in a school. Uh, and I find this so, so fascinating because if I think of the work that I do in school, there are so many priorities that nothing's a priority because we're being pulled here, there and everywhere. But when I started focusing on on teaching, improving teaching, getting better at the moves that I did and the teaching decisions that I made, that behaviour improved, the classroom culture improved, students came out their shells a little bit more, um, they started enjoying the classroom. You know, I, as I said, as you know, I teach a little bit of P and a little bit of mathematics. I've, I've, te- I've, I've got students who hated maths at the start of the year, but now say it's one of the best subjects. And I put that down to because of the focus on improving the teaching has been relentless. You know, how can I make the teaching better? How can I explain this better? How can I involve the students more in, in quick fire questions and cold calling and checking for understanding? And how can I incorporate more deliberate practice? All those things that encompass a really good sequence of lessons. And I think Bruce's focus on improving that across a school has been really, really impactful for his school. And I think if we all did that, we all just stopped focusing on so many things that just don't make a difference for our students and focused on the one thing that we do all day that does make a big difference for our students, then we could really change the game for so many of our students, especially those who are least advantaged or from the lower socioeconomic backgrounds. I think it's a it's a point where it's almost bizarre that it should be a thing of, do you know what's important in schools? Teaching. Like, that shouldn't be a profound thing that we are discussing. We should be like, well, obviously. But like, how many meetings have you had in schools where students weren't mentioned once, where learning wasn't mentioned once, where teaching wasn't mentioned once? It was... Um, Ofsted need to see this. Have you stamped in your book that you've given verbal feedback? That was my favourite. Um, and I think I'm trying to think back on students who I've seen a change in in the course of lessons when I was in the classroom and what, what helped them change their attitude to the lesson, to the class. And did it come down to just in that hour, 40 minutes, whatever it was, they were in a, a good place. Um, and I think maybe that's what you mean by focusing on teaching is focused on making that classroom the best it can be. And if pupils want to be in the classroom, they'll want to be in the hallways, they'll want to be in the schools and everything will come from that culture. Um, Mike, is that, am I rambling there or are you like, this is beautiful? No, I'm, I'm shameful because I'm about to quote you quoting someone else. But I, I remember you talked about, uh, I'll go back to Mr. Barton again. And I know you always hammer on at me that Achievement drives motivation, not motivation driving achievement. And, you know, going back to what Darren just said there, the more, the better you teach your subject, the more achievement there will be in your room, in your class, the more motivation to learn there will be from your students. And that motivation to learn then spreads across the school. Um, especially if you listen to this as a primary school teacher and you teach them for 
90% of the time they're in school, what an impact you can have. You know, we, I don't PE, we see them once or twice a week. Um, so we can have an impact. But if you're a primary school teacher listening to this, wow. Um, you know, if you get your teaching nailed, you can have such an impact. Um, and the, the thing I took away from Bruce and I'm going to be shameful again. I can't remember if it was on our podcast or becoming educated. <laughs> I definitely heard him say this when he talked about, um, the link between teaching and learning and the curriculum. Um, and that a bad curriculum taught well is as bad as a good curriculum taught badly. Um, so one of my key takeaways from Bruce, just a jump on that was how intertwined those two things are that actually getting your curriculum mapping long term, medium term, short term, you know, really, really, um, impactful and then make teaching that really well in the classroom. Um, that was a key takeaway from, from me, but yeah, Darren, I absolutely love your podcast with him and our podcast with him because there was so many insights into just strip it back and focus on being a good teacher. Certainly, and he's so articulate. And just going back to something that Arthur said, like, how many meetings do we have in school? And the, we just don't talk about teaching. And it, it drives me insane that why aren't we talking about teaching? If you get together, you see some um, people that do subject pedagogy sessions. I think that was one of Jade Pierce's ones as well that she got from Sean Allison. And, you know, I would love to do that do that all the time, you know, just talk about like we're, we're teaching, you know, Mike, we could do it now. We could talk about how you teach the javelin and break it down <laughs> and get, get really nitty gritty about how we do the javelin. But, you know, talking about that makes us both better because then we come up with something, a different angle to explain it or different theme to use for feedback and a different thing to use for student practice. And I think that's the, that's the, I've not met a teacher yet that doesn't light up when they talk about things like that. And, and equally when they go into a meeting and they're talking about data again, it's, they just sink. So if we focus on that, then. But I think on, uh, if you think about the best teacher you had and listeners do the same or the best teacher you've seen teacher lesson, the best teacher in your school, best teacher you've gone to visit. Sometimes it's not the teacher where all the kids are like, Oh, they're the best. They're the coolest teacher. They're, they're, they're so much fun. It's the teacher who just teaches their subject really well every single lesson. And Mike, I've got a certain teacher in mind who we've both worked with, who I would not describe as the, the most fun teacher and the teacher the kids wanted to go and high five. But he was such a good subject teacher that everyone went into his class and went, I'm going to learn something and get better at this subject. and. And everything came from that. Everything came from that with that teacher. And I, I used to love watching that teacher do what they did because they just taught really well. Yeah, I, I can't agree more, Arthur. Definitely not. Um, as always, Mike. As always. Not. It's, it's not an what I was trained to be an Ofsted friendly style of teaching where it was <laughs> all singing, all dancing, group work. Come out your groups, find some information, take it back to your group, teach your other bit. It, it's not that, but it's just mastery of your subject and how to deliver it in an effective way. Um, and just to go back to Darren, um, if I could, I wouldn't teach javelin, but if I have to, we all know anyone who trained in the early 2000s, it's, uh, chinny toe, make a bow, watch it go. That's the way you teach javelin. Um, it's exactly how I t- teach quadratic equations, actually. Is that I'll, I'll fill you in on that one later, Arthur. <laughs> That's a, that's a 2000s classic for teaching javelin or throwing. 2000, I was in primary school. Mike, do you want to take off um, on the next one? Yeah, thanks. Insult my age and then go straight into the bridge into my one. Um, so I would go uh, go back to the start when um, Darren spoke about listening to Dr. Jared Horvath. Jared Horvath. Um, it's one of my favourite episodes, not just because it was so fun, but because at that time I was... I was wrestling with this evidence-informed teaching. It was all over Twitter. Lots of people were sharing things. And I'm, I was, you know, assistant head in charge of teaching and learning in the school I was at. And it was like, well, how am I going to read all this research? How am I going to learn about how to make teachers better teachers and then teach teachers how to be better teachers based on all this evidence? And Jared just stripped it back and just said, teachers don't need an in-depth understanding of cognitive science in order to effectively embed good teaching that's evidence informed. Um, you know, and he talked about the fact that just go and read the synopsis of a paper, just go and 
read the key takeaways of it. And there's, you know, there's other people who are going to summarize these things for you. And you can just literally go in, pull out a couple of key findings and implement them very easy into your teaching. So for me, that was a, a really profound moment where I suddenly realized I could engage with evidence informed teaching practices without sitting there and reading a paper and highlighting it and trying to make my own takeaways from it. Actually, there's other people out there doing that job for us. Um, and it's just about linking your teachers in your school, your department with where they can find those key takeaways that where they can go on the internet and just go, right, that is a real key takeaway from that bit of research. I'm going to go and try it tomorrow. Um, I think that for me was my first key takeaway. It did make me, I, I remember our chat after probably off recording of just being like, maybe I should, I, I should probably go and do a PhD. If I don't do a PhD, I can't possibly teach well. Um, and then I should probably do another PhD. In, so yeah, I haven't done oh, my psychology, understand the psychology. No, don't need to do that. I just need to be able to listen to really clever people and do what they tell me to do, <laughs> to put it really simply. So like, if I read like an article, I don't need to understand like what kind of data was gathered. I just need to understand what the data tells me I need to do. And I completely mm -hmm. agree with you, Mike, of it is scary sometimes to be like, right, I want to be more evidence informed. There's so much to read. There's so much. To, I can't, I can't be evidence informed. I'll just keep doing what I do because I'm, I'm okay at what I do. Um, and that shouldn't be. That shouldn't be the way it is. That's part, probably the reason we do our podcast, isn't it, chaps? Like we try and listen to people who are smarter than we are so we can pretend and get smarter. <laughs> get smarter by osmosis. But no, it's absolutely right. The, 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 uh, the sheer volume of stuff that's out there now, it, it's overwhelming for, for lots of teachers. And I find that as part of my whole school role as a teaching and learning leader is to do exactly what Mike said, just break it down and put it into layman's terms for people so that they can easily digest it and then go and try something but do it with the psychological safety or lack of overwhelmness that you can get from looking at the amount you can go on twitter and sometimes you look at things and 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 you're like what are, what are they talking about like just just give me the headlines give me the headlines a little bit and then i'll go and people are really good at sharing little research guys, little snippets, little bits and pieces. And obviously the podcast for me, it's, it's, it's exactly what you said. I'm speaking to people that are way, way smarter than me and way more interested in some things than I am that are able to give me enough that I can then go and share that and, and sound intelligent. It's, it's interesting. But also aligning that in, kind of one angle that I took away from that is that, you know, you get teachers who do lots of good stuff, but they can't really explain it. They just know it as good teaching. And it reminds me of a, there's a really good blog by Sean Allison on the class teaching um, WordPress site. And, and he interviews this teacher called Pam McCulloch, who re who's retiring after many, many years of teaching. And, and he interviews her and he asks her, what are, what is good teaching to you? And I can just imagine him just sitting there, sitting down, right, Pam, before you go, hit me with it. What's good teaching? And he lists all the things she says. And what I find most fascinating about that list is that many of those that are research informed or evidence based would recognize so many things in that list. And I'm willing to bet that Pam McCullough didn't really read a lot of research papers. She just knew through trial and error over time what good teaching is. And it's disseminating that and sharing that that's the challenge because there are teachers, there'll be teachers in our school who, who are long in the tooth. They've, they've seen it all, but they, they just know how to how to teach and how to teach really well. And it's really interesting because they've done exactly what we've just said. They've just soaked everything up over time, figured out through trial and error what works, what do what doesn't. And it's a, it was such an interesting, interesting blog. And I thought that as soon as you said that, Mike, that was kind of, that just popped into my head. Um, because you don't really need to be, um, so that educated, I, had, I spoke to um, Kate Jones and Robin McPherson about their book, The Teaching Life, and they discussed this very theme. And I asked them, you know, is it worth teachers getting a master's or a PhD? And it's like, well, the tentative answer was not really, because why pay all that money away? You can just jump onto Twitter for a couple of hours a week and you get enough to improve your practice. I think a master's is very important, Mark. <laughs> This is a long running feud, Darren. I won't get you involved in this one. Um, no, I think 
we don't need to be experts in cognitive science or understanding how the brain works. But what we do need to be is experts in our context. So we need to understand, here's all the research, but how am I going to apply it to my individual school or class or subject? Um, yeah, and just apply it to your context really, really well. I think that's where teachers can uh, thrive. And also, it's all well and good knowing all these fancy uh, terms, but if you're not using them in the classroom, I've I've seen this with teachers and people on Twitter being like, oh, I had a great lesson on retrieval practice, just smashed a great lesson on spacing, but it's about understanding. It goes back to what you just said, Mike, about understanding how that works in your classroom, in your context. There's no point going, someone comes to your classroom, oh, that was a retrieval lesson. Like, obviously you understand retrieval. Like, I don't need to... Did it work? Are the kids getting something out of it? Which takes us back to let's be great teachers. Let's be great teachers. Certainly all spins in, in roundabouts. Um, Arthur, do you want to kick us back and go on to the next one? So I'm going to take us a little bit away from, I think we've talked a lot about pedagogy and like being teach being teachers in the classroom teaching. I'm going to take us to a, a chat me and Mike had with uh, Jenny Bowers, who is um, used to be a head teacher senior leader in schools and now um, runs her own kind of well-being coaching supervision site. Um, one of my favourite episodes, Mike, by, a, by I absolutely love that episode. I still talk to Jenny um, after it. Um, and what I took away from that is we talk a lot in teaching about, uh, um, oh, you need a coach. You need a mentor to see where you're going. We need to think about these long plans. But what we don't often talk about is um, we need someone to, to have a supervision session with us. And what I mean by that is someone to sit down and not talk about where we're going and the challenges facing us long-term, but someone to talk to us about the challenges we're facing us in the present, in the moment. Um, I know I've had moments in my teaching when I've normally to do with safeguard or something where I've gone like, I, I'm not ready for this. Like I'm not, I'm not dealing with this well. And um, it made me think back to one story, which happened when I was working the same school, stories, um, school as Mike. And I remember messaging you, Mike, on WhatsApp later in the day, probably in the evening, being like, I don't think I'm coping very well with what happened in school today. And you just being like, Let, let's let's chat about it. And we probably went to IMF and played snooker and talked about it. But it's something maybe we don't do. That's a very private joke. There is like there is no listener that's going to get that, Mike. Um, but what it made me think and bring it back to Jenny is like, do we as teachers, do we look after each other? Um, as schools, as departments, but also as a, as a community in the moment. It's very easy to talk about our long-term plans and how we want to be better, but sometimes it's, it's important that we sit down and say what we found challenging today and what we're struggling with today. And I, in the schools I've worked in and the teachers I've worked with, I don't think that's something we do enough. And I'd be interested to hear, especially your thoughts, Darren, if that, if that, if you hear what I'm saying, does that make sense to you? No, I, I, totally, of my world? I totally understand. Something that has been a real loss to the profession over the last two years is the staff room. You know, when many schools change their staff room. I mean, our, the sign in our staff room door still says maximum eight people. You know, and, and I remember when I first came into teaching, and I've got two two sides to, to the, kind of that one. Um, but when I first came into teaching, the, every single member of a staff went to the staff room break time for a cup of tea. And it was, it meant you could do that. You could discuss the weekend's football or what happened on Coronation Street last night, but also you can offload and you can share and, and break down what happened in your lesson. And if you're on, if you're on a table with people, I kind of purposely put myself into tables with people with varying degrees of experience and things that there's always somebody there that experienced it as well. So they could share that with you. And, and I found that so beneficial in my early career. That it really helped me kind of compartmentalize the, the teaching and, and what happens in the classroom, what happens in, in kind of corridors and what happens at lunchtime and so on. And, and I can remember the first time a child confided in me a, 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 an issue that they were having at home and I just didn't know what to do. But lucky, luckily enough, it was before break. So at break time, I went straight to the staff room and was like, what do I do? And then I was bombarded with little strategies of what to do. And I was able to resolve that quite quickly. But I think the loss of the staff room is a real loss to the profession. And I hope that comes back pretty soon. But second to that, um, as a, as a PE teacher, we don't have a classroom. So we 
tend to congregate in bases, which I've found incredibly valuable throughout my career. And I still find it valuable now. You know, when I teach my maths class, the kids leave and I'm just left alone in the classroom. But when I teach my PE lesson and I go back to the base, there's people there. You can offload, you can go, that was a terrible lesson because this, what, this X, Y, Z. But equally, you can go, I absolutely smashed that lesson team. And you can share why. But you've got that team, that kind of, what do you call it? Community. You know, community that you can share um, your successes and losses with. And I think that's invaluable. And I think a lot of, um, from kind of the outside looking at a lot of classroom teachers, they miss that. You know, I often see teachers eating their lunch alone in a, in a classroom. And I don't think in my 10 years of teaching, I've ever eaten my lunch alone. You know, and I think that's a very, very important point that you've brought up, Arthur, because it's a, teaching's a lot, it's a, you're, a lot of people enter teaching and they're in it for a long time. So it's important that there is somebody that helps them in the, in the here and now. So it's a really great point. And I think what we spoke about, Mike, was how often would, going back to classroom teachers, if, um, you come into my room to have a chat and I'm sitting there having my lunch on emails and you're talking to me, maybe you're talking about something important to you, important to me. And I, I, I am, I'm tapping away. I'm doing my emails. I'm, I'm, I'm marking a worksheet. And what we don't do is kind of what you're talking about, Darren, is we don't sit down in a, in a, in a space that neither of us own, the staff room, um, these kind of communal areas and kind of look each other in the eye and go like, how are you doing? It was something I really tried to do when I was in schools. And I probably failed of just sometimes walking into other people's classrooms at the end of the day, break time, lunchtime, just being like, let's go, let's go and get a drink. Let's go and get a coffee. Let's go and chat about nothing. Let's go and chat about everything. Um, Mike, is that something like from your, your experiences, kind of assistant head SLT type roles? Um, is that something you've, you've seen change over the years? Like kind of that, that sense of community in schools? It's different in every school, isn't it? Um, been into school recently and I was in the staff room for a while and I didn't see another member of staff at all. And, you know, somebody else in the school said, Oh no, every, every department has their own office, which really worries me actually. Um, and I know there's a PE office and <laughs> I know the PE office can be an intimidating place for other people to go into. But like Darren said, that's the only space you have got. Um, but. Yeah, always getting like getting out of my office and getting into the staff room is a, a, a really important part. And you know, Darren, you brought that home there when you said that. Is I'm so used to walking out of a lesson and going and sitting in a communal space with people and just having a one or two minute conversation about how lessons went. Right, there's four of you in the department. We've all just taught a year group uh, or a class each in the year group. Had everyone all right? Had it go? Oh, so and so did this, or oh, that lesson didn't go well. Have a quick chat about it and then move on. And then when you get promoted to assistant head and suddenly you're in an office on your own. And I sat there and I was like, I haven't got anyone to have those conversations with anymore. And I don't want to be that assistant head who's constantly going into the PE office and distracting people. And I've got stuff to get on with. But you notice the difference between having people to talk to, sometimes not even about work and not. And that was a, a big contrast for me. Um, and I know me and Arthur, we, we see coaching in, in very different ways. I'm all for coaching uh, in terms of improving teaching and that approach. Um, but I'm not good at being coached myself, especially when it kind of comes to, or supervision, you call it after, don't you? In terms of what Jenny talked about, in terms of I'm having an issue today, I need to speak about my problems. I, I'm a, I guess you would say a classic PE teacher when it comes to that. I don't want to share my problems. I'll get on with it. But Jenny was brilliant in terms of showing the value of those conversations and it really resonated in me when I made that swap from having a communal space where I was part of a small community who supported each other and moving away into a very isolated role in schools. Um, My first school, Darren, didn't have a staff room, wasn't allowed. Um, we didn't have... I think they just no told communal- you that, Arthur. I think, <laughs> I think there was a staff room where everyone else was. I think they just told you on day yeah, one. There was this, ro- there's there's this room with tea and coffee, but they said we weren't allowed in there. Um, I saw people in there, but I didn't tell on them. Don't worry. Um, no, my first school, no staff room, no office area. The only place we were allowed to be together was the joint classrooms we had, which hold 90 students. We used to team teach and the, uh, restaurant, not canteen school restaurant where we were allowed to sit and talk for 20 minutes at lunchtime. And I, when, when I went to my second school and there were people in the staff room, I didn't go in there for six months 
I didn't, I didn't know what you're supposed to do in the staff room. What are you supposed to do there? And the other point I was going to make, and I think we've all done this, especially in our early careers. I'm going to admit to have doing this. I think every teacher's done this at some point. You walk past the staff room. Uh, you're busy. You're walking fast. You've got some books in your hand. You're important. And you look in the staff room. There's three or four teachers sitting down with a cup of tea. And you go, they're not as busy as I am. And you speed on. And we judge them. We go, well, they can't be as busy. I, I'm working so well. Well done, me. And they're probably in there having a really important conversation about some stuff they're struggling with or some stuff they want to try out. But I've made that judgment. And I'm pretty sure every teacher at some point has made, you've walked past the classroom and, oh, they're not marking. I'm, oh, look at me. Look at me. I've got, I've got a coffee in my hand because I'm so busy. I need caffeine. They're there with water. They can't be that busy. I now understand why they didn't tell you where the staff room was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everyone's done it. You two can laugh. I bet at some point you've walked past and gone, they're not as busy as me. Aye, no one's as busy as me, Arthur. <laughs> it's, it's the same when you see the teacher walking out the door at the same time as the kids, isn't it? It's, um, but everyone works in different ways. Everyone manages yeah. their time and their work in their own way, don't they? And, and, but yeah, having that opportunity to talk, Jenny definitely opened my eyes to that on that episode. Um, how important it is to have those conversations, even if you feel that you don't need to have the conversation, mm. you probably need to have so, it more than you realize. So I've got faint. Find Sorry. that the the school community is much stronger. Um, and I remember when I was in that first school, and and the the collegiality among the teachers, you know, the children knew that the teachers spoke about them all the time, and it it just it just had something that you know you knew that somebody had your back all the time, you know, and you get and you hear stories of other teachers that feel isolated in a big school, you know, and that should never happen. A teacher sh- teaching for me. Choose the sport, but teaching is a team sport. You know, it, it, the, if 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 one member of the team allows something in the classroom that lets the rest of the school down, they've let the team down. We need to start thinking about teaching being a team sport. If we all build each other up, the team is strong and working well, then you can have a really high performance school. And that kind of the bedrock of that is that community feel where everybody, you know, now I, I work, I've worked in my school for over about a year and a half now. And I, uh, there's teachers in the school that I don't really know how to spell their name. And that's bad for team, the team ethics. I'm all about the team. And I think it's so important to have staff rooms, to have offices, to have places where you can unload, places where you can um, share a joke and a laugh. And and, and if you want to go, go and, cry about something because if you do that then you'll get it off your chest and so on in a safe space i think if you have that and you have that team you find that the staff are more together as opposed to when you go into schools and there's not not, that's not there and staff are just in their silos and they don't know i think it's so it's so important that teachers know what's happening in each other's classrooms and they do that through that conversations of what have you know you sit in the staff room and you have that and well, I would never allow that in my classroom. And you go, I either would I, but I did today. <laughs> and so, but that's so good to, to get a barometer of what's what's happening and what's going across the school. And the children know that. You know, the, when I worked in that school, the students just knew. They knew that when they were in my class and they were going to the next teacher and the next teacher, they knew that we all spoke to each other and they knew the script with every single one. And it was it just creates such a good atmosphere in the school and you know you're not alone which I think teaching can sometimes feel like a lonely experience knowing you're not alone is so important um Darren what's your what's your number two key takeaway so so my second one um comes from a conversation with Doug Lamov and um I absolutely I absolutely adored this conversation and I was total super fan it was it was the best one of the best hours of my year um but I, I took it, took that from a different angle from his book. I focused on the first chapter of his book. And the fifth principle he gave in that is something that really resonated with me. And that is teaching well is relationship building. And it resonated with me because throughout my entire career, I've heard about, you know, you must make a relationships first. No, nobody learns without a relationship in place. Relationships are everything in teaching. And I totally agree. Relationships are everything. But I think that within the noise of that, many teachers have got it the wrong way around and think that I need to make a relationship with this child before I can teach them. And to be quite frank, 
I think that's nonsense. And Doug Lamov backed that up. And if we go back to what you said, Arthur, earlier on about the best teacher, think about your best teacher. We spoke in my podcast about my favourite teacher. Uh, and he's sadly no longer with us, but a man called Jeff Jones, he was the coolest guy in the world. He wore a three-piece suit. He had rock star hair. He was a radio DJ at the weekends. He was super intelligent and he spoke perfect Queen's English. And I grew up in the northeast of Scotland. No one spoke perfect Queen's English. We spoke in a language that people just couldn't understand. But anyway, um, he was tremendous. And I keep thinking about why did I love him so much? Why do I love him so much? And it was because he taught me first. And I think that's so important that I didn't need to find out. He didn't need to find out what football team I supported. But because he taught me incredibly well, challenged my thinking, demanded of me a high standard. I knew that he cared about me. I just knew that he did. He never needed to tell me. I just knew that the way that he, the way that he taught, the way that he interacted with you, the way that he told you you can do a lot better than that and the way that he praised you when you did do a good job I just knew that he cared about me and if we think about that you know it's you get a new class for the first time and there's 30 kids in it you can't have a relationship with 30 kids in the first 10 minutes of a lesson but what you can do is teach them to the best of your ability and notice so you're teaching them and you're instructing them they're doing some practice and when you're going around there's a beautiful clip and teach like a champion 3.0 with Denarius Fraser. He's on the he's on the front cover of, of the books. I would love to spend a couple of days with this with him, just watch him teach. But he's circulating the classroom. And in that circular, he's he's telling students very directly what the, what they need to do. You need you need you've got an incorrect remainder, you need to fix this. But in amongst that, he's saying, That's much better than last time. You've got this. You're killing this. This is brilliant. I'm going to come back in two minutes. And he does come back and he checks on. And the relationship is, he's saying to them that I really care about you. I really value your time. And I'm going to show you that I do that by giving you the best possible instruction and making you better in my subject. And you can just see it through the little interactions that he gives in that clip that the students are responding to that and they're just working that little bit harder for him each time they come back because he notices that. And he's not doing that because... He's tailoring the work to their favourite baseball team or he's asking them about what happened at the weekend. He's focusing on the teaching and through teaching well, he's building that strong relationships because there's a certain relationship between a teacher and a student. And it, and I spoke to Doug about my relationship with, with Mr. Jones. Even now, I still call him Mr. Jones. And I, that speaks to the relationship that we have from him. It's a teacher-student relationship. It's not a... a Friend, friend relationship. It's not anything else. It's a teacher student relationship. And that relationship's special in so many different ways because we all remember our teachers and we remember the best ones. We remember the best ones that let us kind of kick back and relax, but they're not really the best. But we remember the best ones who, who made us believe we're a little bit better. I don't know if you watched the Adele, the Adele concert and she, this teacher came out of the crowd that was there. And you've seen the emotion in Adele's face. And she called the teacher by her surname, not her first name, her surname. And they spoke about the demands that she placed on Adele and the belief that she had on Adele. And I think that really spoke volumes to what Doug spoke about and really gave a different one to what Doug spoke about. This idea of teaching well is relationship building. And I, and I, and I really... It just that idea really clicked with me because my entire my entire um, career has been based on get a relationship first, get a relationship first, and I've always been conflicted with that because I just didn't know what that meant. And I think I've I totally figured it out through watching those clips and watching that interaction with Adele and my own relationship with my own teachers. That those ones that have that lasting impression are the ones that are just excellent at teaching and talk to you mainly about their subject, which I find really fascinating. But I'd welcome your thoughts on that. I don't know what there is to add to that. I mean, it's if you gave any piece of advice to a trainee teacher, it would be that, wouldn't it? If you said to them, right, you know all the theory behind your subject, you know, you know the theory behind how to deliver a lesson. One last tip before you go into those classrooms, this. 
I, I think you'd perfectly set them up for an excellent career in teaching if they they just kept coming back to that. How how am I doing right by the students? And I can't remember who it is on Twitter, but someone on Twitter I've read is they constantly refer it back to teach as if it's your child in the front row. Is it your child in that classroom? And keep coming back to them. How would you want a teacher's relationship with your child to be? And you want that, don't you? You, you want it where it's totally focused on how much can I teach you? How well can I teach you? Um, but with that motivational kind of relationship behind it as well, where they really, really care about your child. Um, yeah, I think that episode of your podcast is, is brilliant. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Just for the fact you just focused on one part of the book, that just that chapter one, and he was able to go into so much detail about the kind of thinking behind that and some really, really good examples. And, you know, he referenced Paul Scholes, which you know, he has me all day, Darren, if he references Paul Scholes. Um, but yeah, love, love that piece of advice. All I can think back to, and it's one of the things I would change very early on is, uh, well, uh, welcome to uh, your first lesson with Mr. Moore. Uh, if you open your book, I'd like to write your favourite film, uh, your favourite band, uh, your favourite food, and, and then I'll read them all, and then we'll be best friends, and then you'll really like coming to my lesson, because at some point I'll say Toplum, and you'll go, ha, he's read it. Um, and that's that's what we're taught almost is relationship building. No no pointless facts about your students. Um, and that will make them better at maths, because you know what that pizza's their favourite food. And I think you're 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 bang on in saying like the best the best teacher I had, Miss Gregsby Ledge, she just wanted me to be better at maths. And she made me better at maths by teaching me maths really well. Um and from that, I, I knew that she cared about what I did. And I'm conflicted on your point, Mike, of teach every kid like they're your own. Because with having kids, like would I teach my own son the same way I would teach a girl? I, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I need to go away and think about that because I probably like Jasper, my son, like I probably give him a bit more leeway. I want different things. What do I want from his teachers? I want them teaching the student their subject in the way they would do it to the best of their ability. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would teach every kid like I would teach my own son. I need to go away and kind of think about that. Um, but I think what Dan was saying, just like, relation the relationship you have with your student is you are their teacher that's the relationship you're supposed to be building you're supposed to be building the teacher student relationship you're not building any other relationship you're their teacher they are their student and that strong relationship will lead to like will lead to other things like if you're a good teacher if there's a safeguarding issue that student will they'll come and they'll go and talk to a teacher who they think is a good teacher and we saw all the time in news is like Oh, teachers need to be mums, dads, social workers, chefs, uh, mental well-being. No, we're supposed to be teachers. Everything else comes from that. If we if we do our job really well and those students know we value them as students, they'll know we value them as people. Maybe not the other way around. Certainly. And it's such an interesting one because it's an emotive one. And I love that example you gave, Arthur, um, about the, that classic first lesson icebreaker. And I, I, I've not done that in a few years. It's, it's first lesson. Here's, here's the rules. Right. That's taken 10 seconds. Brilliant. Here's the, here's the subject. Here's what we're learning today. And I like that. And, and, and Mike, the one about imagine you're, it's your child in the front row. I, I, I'm different from after. That resonated with me a little bit. I don't have children, but, I, um, I'm quite, a, I don't know. I'd imagine I'd be quite strict. You know, my parents were quite strict. Um, but I just love it if my, I can just imagine my father teaching me at the front row, you know, I'd be sitting up straight, like ready, I'm ready to learn. You know, I'd love that. And it, but it's that care and attention that you would give, you would teach your children with a care and attention to detail, a compassion that if you gave that to every child, it would echo that idea of teaching well is relationship building, I think. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's just us, Darren. Maybe we're just those sort of, uh, of teachers and, and parents, who knows? Yeah, no. but I know what football team they support and what their favourite time of food is. <laughs> so who's the real winner? I don't do that anymore. I just want to put out there. I mean, maybe you could say, oh, so-and-so in the front row. I know you really like eating pizza. Today we're going to talk about pie. Um, wow. Been working on that, have you? Um, right, on to the, the final takeaway. And it's kind of linked to what we were just talking about 
there because we we spoke to Emma Shepherd from maternity teacher paternity teacher, and this was a really cool conversation for me because I just well I had about how old was my daughter at the time I think about two months, um, and she's I mean she's just coming up to four months now at recording this, so I'm very very new to this and and getting used to it and um, I think it's fair to say we didn't have like the smoothest pre-pregnancy and the smoothest pregnancy um, and we needed an awful lot of support from the people around us at work um, leaders at work uh, the school community um, you know people help without even knowing they need to help sometimes and it shocked me when we we had the conversation with her about the fact that there's no legal entitlement for certain things um, some of the case studies she was talking about and the key takeaway for me was how much schools need to support staff. Um, and this doesn't just go for being a parent, but for any issue they're going through in their life. Of actually schools need to have really, really good support systems for staff and things that are going on in their life outside of work. Um, you know, and she's spoke very much through the, the guise of being a teacher, being a parent and a teacher simultaneously and the strain that can put on you professionally, the strain it can put on you at home as well and how the school needs to do everything they can to support um, teachers. And and that was really profound for me because when you find out you're going to be a, a parent, you have this kind of big thing of how's it going to affect me professionally? Is it going to make me a better teacher? Like we were just talking about, you know, am I going to suddenly be more empathetic with the students? Am I, am I going to be more caring with that student who's having a really bad day and is, is actually being really difficult with me uh, because I know that, as a parent, I know what I would do with my child and, or is it going to make me a worse teacher? Cause am I just going to get to the bell at the end of the day and think, I want to go home? Um, or I've not had any sleep the night before and I'm going to rock up to a lesson and be a disaster in a classroom because I've got so much going on outside of work that I can't focus on the simple things like I used to in the same way. So yeah, the takeaway from that was just how schools need to support parents and in particularly mothers and um, we spoke about that a lot on the episode as well um, not just in the short term but in the long-term career in teaching as well um, I don't know if that resonates with you Arthur as well I know you, you've recently become a father for the second time um, and obviously you were involved in that episode as well um, but did you, did you take the same thing from that conversation? That episode I think made me think on a personal level more than any other um, I, I know I've put a lot out, well, not a lot, but I've put stuff on Twitter, on LinkedIn of like, um, when we were trying for our first, me and my partner suffered a, a miscarriage and we were so well supported in our environment. Um, we had a phenomenal principal who understood. We had a phenomenal, um, head of a school who understood my line manager understood everyone understood. And we were allowed to go away and kind of be who we needed to be. Um, and kind of come back into an environment, non-judgmental, everyone got it. Um, and we, like, I remember just feeling so lucky, like really lucky. Um, I remember calling you on the day, Mike, to tell you that I remember that conversation vividly. And I remember you kind of talking to me as a friend, but also in kind of a professional capacity, you were probably my skip line manager at that point. Um, and it was incredibly well supported. And what it's made me think since is if we didn't have that level of support, man that would have been so much harder just in every way and i i know schools that don't provide that level of school i know leaders i've worked with leaders who would not do that and that is not okay and i don't think it's something like oh it's something we need to get better at it's something like, like it's something you just need to do um something as schools we need to we need to embrace our employees as as people and they will be better employees for it um it worried me that there was no legal entitlement for leave in the situation you were in um you know when when emma spoke about it there's no legal entitlement um to have time off of work when you've gone through a situation like that um i think it was less than 20 weeks or something like that it was it it still sits with me now how mad that is and i kind of feel that the law needs to change before a lot of these employers will change because until there's a legal president to support people like that it is going to be very much school by school, employer by employer basis. And I think that's where people listening to this podcast would like, you can all make a difference. You can bring that up. Um, and it's kind of, 
Like I know it's it's three guys talking about this, but Emma spoke a lot about like the people who make up the biggest proportion of our teaching community are thirty to thirty nine year old women, and the women who are most likely to go on maternity leave are women in their thirty to thirty nine. Um, so we're not supporting the community who are like this is going to have a big effect on our schools. So like we need to we need to do better. And that com- if I was to say one episode of tea and teaching might for people to go and listen to it would be that one and i would say like even if you're not a teacher just go and listen to that episode and then go and do your research on what emma does like emma's great go onto those websites go on to thing emma, rec- emma recommends um and i think that's brought about more conversations on a personal level and speaking to emma is actually like i've i sat down and spoke to my part like i think it's really important we have those conversations with our with our staff who are quite often our friends, but even if they're not, we need to have those conversations. And as you said, Mike, it's not just about kind of, it's it, it, we're talking about parent teachers, but this is about embracing the fact that our teachers are people and they will, they will have their own things going on. And it's all well and good to say, Oh, you're at school. So like, let's get on with it. But that, that doesn't always work. I've, I've been in situations where if someone said, come into school and do your normal job, I would have not done my normal job. <laughs> like I would have been incapable of doing it. Um, Darren, you can, hear, you can hear that, that conversation meant a lot to me and Mike. Like I hope you can feel that. Like listening to that, what does that kind of bring to you? It's certainly cause I, I've got no skin in that guy. I have no children, but, um, it, it, it's, it's crazy when you hear about, I've heard it throughout my entire about mothers and fathers who aren't released from their school to, for their child's first day in primary school. They aren't released for a couple of hours to go to a child's first show at school. Um, they don't take a, enough time off or they aren't allowed enough time off when a family member is unwell. All these things that are part of being a human and being part of a family and, and so on. And it's, it, I think with a lot of these things, we need to recognize that teaching is just a job. For some of us, it's, I mean, it's for, for me, it's probably more than that. Um, it's a hobby as well as a job, but it is just a job. And I, th- I think that's crazy. I mean, what you're saying there, I, th- I think I got the gist of what you're saying about it, but there's no legal entitlement for time off if you suffer a, a miscarriage or anything like that. And to expect someone to come into work and produce the level of work they're capable of after that is, you must be mad to think that they're going to be able to do that. And to put them in front of other people's children as well is, is a lack of empathy for the system. And I've never, like, I've never had to ask for any support or help in that regard. And I remember when my father had a quite a bad heart attack. I can remember being allowed a day off to go and see, to go and visit him. And, and, and I, and I, and I think what you say is an important note in that. And after being allowed that, I knew that I would have just done anything in that job, anything I was asked to do. I was now, it's like we spoke about the staff community and the staff as a team. I think if you've got a leader or set of leaders that would, that are empathetic, that understand that you are a, a human, a parent, you're a parent, a husband, a mother, an aunt, an uncle, a, a grandparent. And if you understand that you're that first and a teacher second, you then have a body of staff that go over and above every day because they know that they'll get support for whatever they need. And it was interesting. I don't know if you've ever heard Lucy Crean speak or read her book, Cleverlands, because she spoke about, she travelled the world to find with the, to investigate the high, highest performing nations according to PISA. And, and she land, she, I think she's landed on Canada for where she would send her child to school because it had the most support for children. I think every Canadian school has like a child psychologist and a, a bereavement counsellor and all this kind of stuff. Whereas our schools severely lack in those kind of things. And, and if you have that, and if you have those sort of things that are for the kids and for the staff as well, you just have a much stronger staff base. I think, I, and, and it echoes as well. I, uh, when I interviewed Kat Howard many moons ago, she wrote an excellent book about don't talk about well-being. And in our book and in the conversation I had, she mentioned that we have something ridiculous, like a quarter of a million teachers 
registered to teach that don't teach in schools. And the vast majority of them are women because being a mother and being a teacher just didn't, wasn't easy for them for whatever reason, because we just didn't make it easy enough for them. And oftentimes they are the best, losing that volume of teachers, the best teachers that we can have that care deeply about it. You know, you can imagine the decisions, the struggle that many of them had of, you know, I I love my job, but I love my kids more. You know, it was an easy decision to make, but you can imagine the struggle. But because the schools didn't accommodate, and if you ever listen to Emma Turner talk about um, flexible jobs, you know, rather than lose two outstanding teachers, you can keep them both, but just have them both job share. But we don't do that enough. We don't do that enough. We just say, no, we can't have that. So we'll lose two incredible people and replace them with one who will turn up every day, who might not be the best. And, and, and as there's so many conversations we can have around about supporting teachers who are parents, supporting teachers who want to work part-time, supporting teachers who um, are carers, so, on the, so they can still do the job they love and have an impact on students, but also be able to be the mother, sister, grandmother that they need to be. It's part of the reason I ended up leaving the classroom is because I decided I couldn't be the teacher I wanted to be and be the, the husband and father I wanted to be. And if it came to a choice, only one of those things is going to win. I'm going to, I'm going to be a dad and a husband before my job. Um, and I, I know that, that that was my decision. It's not a decision for everyone. And I know there's some schools that are incredible, but it's sad that other people I know have left this, the teaching profession who were incredible teachers, way better teachers than me, cared so much, were phenomenal. And they felt all those things were incompatible with being in a school. Um, it's all well and good having a really good policy system in school. Mike knows how I love a policy. But if you've got no one to apply those policies to, there's no point of those policies. Like, have if you have really good teachers, and this links back to kind of everything we've said, or if you bring it all back into one thing, if you have really good teachers who do really good lessons where they teach really well, the school will do well, the students will do well. Um, but if you don't have people who uh, are allowed to be great, they'll never be great teachers. Yeah, it's create an environment where everyone can thrive isn't it that's that's the the crux of it is create the environment where people can come in do their work um to a really really high standard and if they're having problems if they need support if they need to be a bit more flexible with how they're working create that environment where they can do that as well and then they will go above and beyond in the classroom like you said darren they'll they'll do everything they can for you as an employer as a, a senior leader if you've gone out your way for them as well. It's a two-way relationship. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly is. And what a wonderful way to close off the our six things that we've learned from our respective podcasts. I've really, really enjoyed that conversation, gentlemen. Thank you so much for inviting me along. Well, thanks for having uh, us. Thank you for having us. I do love a crossover episode. Can I ask, gents? So we spoke about the f- why we did podcasts, what we've learned from podcasts. What do you hope to learn from your respective podcasts going forward. Um, I don't think we spoke about that, so I'm going to throw it to Mike almost immediately. Mike. Oh, talk about being put on the spot. What do I hope to learn? I think I just want to keep learning about different people and their views on education. And because everyone we speak to, I take a different thing from. And the whole point, you know, we go back to what we said at the start. If you're the most intelligent person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And the aim for me is to keep being the, dumbest person in the room um i just want to keep doing a great job of it so far (laughs) oh just feed your ego a little bit um yeah not the most intelligent person i should have said shouldn't i um but yeah just keep having great guests on arthur and keep learning from those there's so much we can learn and there's so much um you don't know what you don't know so i keep i want to keep working out what i don't know uh i'll fire that over to darren i've given you a little bit of time to think there darren you've had the easy route Certainly, no, I, I actually don't know. Um, I, I've learned so much so far in the podcast and my current thinking is I just want to get to 100 episodes as quick as I can. Um, and God knows what will happen when I get there. 
Um, but for me, I just want to keep drilling down into what really, really, really good teaching is and looks like. And hopefully that will help me and everyone that listens to my podcast just be that little bit better tomorrow than they were today. Arthur? I was hoping to get away without that question. I thought we were just going to round up. I'm going to bring it back to what I said at starters when I, one of the big moments of my education career was reading how I wish I'd taught mathematics. Craig Barton, who will definitely come on my our podcast if I keep saying his name on it. It's either that or you're um, on royalties for sales of his book. I wish I was. Um, got my copy. Got my copy in front of me, Mike. Um, but I love those conversations that make me go, I wish I'd known that. I wish I'd known that when I started. I wish I'd known that. And I hear that. There's something in almost every episode, Mike, where I go, I wish someone had said that to me five years ago. I wish someone had just sat me down and listened to these things. And that's why I love doing this podcast, because it's teaching me things that I need to know in order to be a better educator and person. And then if one person listens to this and takes something away, and they go and have those conversations in the staff room, and that's how we help each other. We have conversations. Uh, no one gets smarter by sitting by themselves in silence in the dark. We've got to pick up something to read. We've got to speak to someone. We've got to listen to something. So just, I just like learning. I just want to keep learning. Right. What a wonderful, wonderful way to close then. Arthur, Mike, thank you so much um, for spending your Monday evening with me and discussing all things teaching and learning. No other way I'd rather spend it. Good luck with the 100. We'll be cheering you on. Thanks, Darren. Thank you so much for listening to Becoming Educated. Before you go, can I ask for a few things that will only take a minute? I'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you are listening from to get each episode into more ears. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. And finally, to keep the conversation going, please use the hashtag Becoming Educated and tag me on Twitter at DN Leslie. I'll be back soon with more insights and knowledge from the greatest profession on earth.